The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 once again. Uh, today I have an unusual topic in these past several weeks of our altered schedules. I've uh, spent our time with issues that could be causes of what we're going through right now. All the troubles that we have, issues such as lack of holiness, lack of righteousness, and, and then last week the retreat of our country from Christian principles. And during this time, I've received many phone calls from our membership. I've received text messages and emails, and much of those have been related to the problems that we're going through. But then occasionally, uh, the discussions would turn to other things, other subjects, and there are questions that I might normally deal with that would we would do it during the forum class. But since we're not able to have that venue uh, at present time, I would discuss those issues with people one-on-one. -on -one. Well, a few weeks ago, I had a question about fasting. It's curious sometimes how a topic is chosen for a sermon. I mean, when I, when I stray away from our usual method of uh, expositing the Scriptures verse by verse, or in, um, and I'm in a series of messages, it's not really difficult for me to find what the next message is going to be because it's just going to follow the text. But when we're not in a series, it is more difficult to determine what to preach. How, how do I know what I'm supposed to preach? You ever think about that? I don't hear audibly from God. He doesn't appear to me in dreams and visions. So how do I know what I'm supposed to preach? Well, sometimes it comes through a member of the church. I don't know what I'm supposed to preach, and I'm looking for a subject, and then someone says something to me. Someone asks a question on a particular topic, and then that thought is put into my mind, and like a flash of lightning, it's just like, I know this. That, that is what I'm supposed to preach, and I, I think it would be good for us to discuss that subject. And so that's how you get this message today on fasting. Uh, someone ask a question about it. So I thought, well, this would be a good time to investigate this question of fasting and what the Bible tells us to do about it. Are we to practice fasting? Would this be a good time for us to fast? I mean, with the troubles that we're going through, all the problems that we have, can we solve these kinds of problems by fasting? Now, I don't think I need to explain to you what fasting is, but... If, I, if some of you may not know, perhaps I, I should say that fasting just means abstaining from food for a time for religious purposes. Now, we're not talking about dieting here, not that type of fasting. This is just staying away from food, fasting from food for a time, while we may consider something that God is, is doing at the, at the present time. Now, now some of you have a... Catholic background, uh, you were saved out of the ritualism of Catholicism, and you were taught that fasting is a means of gaining merit. Fasting may be a means of showing piety, of making some kind of claim to consecration, to devotion, and even 
righteousness. And if so, if that's what you were taught, that perversion fits very well into Jesus' complaints against the Pharisees and their practice of fasting that we find in the Scriptures. Now, I want you to look at these Scriptures in Matthew 6. They are a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which he addressed in these, these uh, three verses the way that the Jews practice fasting. So, Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 16. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now let me briefly explain the context of these verses. Uh, this is one of the reasons I had us read the, the first part of this chapter. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed issues of how we are to worship God. Worship had been perverted by Jewish rabbis, so that by the time that Jesus came, religion in Israel was hypocritical. It centered in salvation by works, a righteousness gained by good works that, that we would do, or they would do, rather than salvation by the grace of God. Now, how we're justified with God is, is the central core message of the Bible. And that message and understanding of it must be right in order for us to be in a right relationship with God. And because the Jews were wrong about this, wrong about justification, they had no relationship with God, and so thus they could never worship him in the right way. Now, one of the indications of wrong worship was the way that they had perverted fasting. And they had made fasting a badge of pretended piety and holiness. The leaders wanted people to think that they were holy. And so they would use practices like fasting to prove that they were. And what they would do is they would discolor their faces. They would make their cheeks hollow. They would appear to be hungry and weak and look as if they were almost tortured in their desire to give up things for God. In this text of Matthew 6, Jesus really wasn't so much concerned about straightening out the method of fasting and giving commands about how we are to do it, but rather in the larger context of the passage, he's teaching about worship and about right relationship with God and about personal piety that comes from a heart that has been changed by the grace of God. And this kind of relationship that we would have with God does not require a certain amount of rituals and things that you would do, acts that would you would do that would make you righteous, and neither does it induce us to do things that would cause us to be applauded by people so they would recognize how holy we are. It won't cause us to smear ashes on our faces as Roman Catholics do in the season of Lent. Now, in this scripture, we see that very clearly fasting is not a public display. Fasting is between the believer and God. It's not to be an announcement by any verbal or visual clues. Fasting is supposed to be a secret exercise. Now, in the first part of the chapter, Jesus said, Take heed 
that you do not your alms. And by this he means the practicing, practicing your righteousness. He says, do not practice your righteousness before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And so overall, this is Jesus' intent as he addresses the subject. Are we to take personal pride in acts of worship such as giving, praying, and fasting? Well, as we look at this subject, I I would like for us to uh, first look at the history of Israel before Christ began the church. And then we're going to look at how this this fasting issue relates to the New Testament church today. First, we look then at the Old Testament practice of fasting. Obviously, the Jews got the idea of fasting from the Old Testament. It's not something that they pulled out of thin air. And because they were so concerned in the time of Jesus, they were so concerned about all the rituals that they would keep that would make them right with God. They would search the Old Testament scriptures to make sure that they had all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. In the Old Testament, there was a command to fast, but there was only one specific time when the law said that they were to do it. And this was connected to the most important religious observance of the year, and that was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the day when Israel would, would, was called upon to admit and to confess and repent of their sins. It was a national day of repentance and mourning and sacrifice. And to memorialize that, to call attention to how serious that sin is, God said, on this day you must fast. You must keep yourselves from food. They must deny themselves in recognition that they needed to repent of their sin. And so it was a time of mourning for sin. And I want you to get that into your thought, into your mind right now, the connection that it has with mourning. Fasting was connected to repentance and mourning. And there was only one day of the year, one time of the year that was prescribed for fasting. And that was to make it so uncommon that the purpose of doing it wouldn't be forgotten. Later, Israel extended fasting. They extended to other days of national mourning. For example, Israel fasted and they mourned when Saul and Jonathan died. There was a national day of fasting and mourning. Ezra and Nehemiah called Israel to assemble after the rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And the people, the word of God says, fasted and they mourned as they listened to the reading of the law. And Israel sorrowed in repentance because of their sins. Now, in the Old Testament, the fasting was always a corporate exercise. And so you don't find that there is a command for fathers to teach their children to fast. But when they did fast... It was assumed that there was so much inner turmoil and so much sorrow that they couldn't eat. And so they were deep in mourning, and that's why they would fast. So the only time that fasting was commanded was in a corporate setting. And then it involved the entire nation. And besides that, you won't find anywhere in the Old Testament that Israel or any individual was commanded to fast. But Israel did expand upon it, and fasting became more common. In times of sadness, people would fast. In times when repentance was needed and folks recognized that they needed to repent of sin, they would fast. An example would be when Jonah went to preach at Nineveh. Uh, In the book of Jonah, you can read this, that Nineveh 
fasted and repented. Now, Nineveh, of course, that's that's not the people of God. Those aren't Jews. But it gives you an idea of why people would fast because of the repentance of sin and mourning for sin. And when they did, God saved their city from destruction. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And so there you see again that often fasting is related to mourning. And so when bad things would happen to them, they would fast, they would sit in clothes of mourning, and they would put ashes on their head, and that would show how deeply they were affected by some evil that had come upon them. And so there was this practice of fasting in the Old Testament, and then it was expanded beyond the original command. And in truth, as we read Old Testament Scripture, we don't find anywhere where God rebuked them for their fasting, When it was genuine, when it was sincere, when they were grieved and they wanted to fast, there's no problem with that. But things changed over the years. And we come to the New Testament, and fasting by then was way out of order. Now, secondly, then, we look at the New Testament perversions of fasting. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in this passage And as I said, his comments are not so much about telling them they should fast or they shouldn't fast, but it's about how they had twisted it and how they made a show of it to make other people think how holy and pious they were. And so fasting became a religious ritual that was not connected with genuine sorrow and repentance, but it became a show. It was just something to gain recognition and even to fool people into thinking they were close to God. And so they began to fast frequently. Their theological perversions and the wrong answer to this question, how can a man be right with God, how can we be justified with God, led them into frequent acts of fasting. Because in their reasoning, if a person is going to be righteous with God and he can do this by good works, then the more good works you do, then the more righteous you will be. And so if they wanted to prove their righteousness, they had to do this often. And so in proving it, they made people think that they were more holy than others. And they would just keep on fasting. They fasted frequently. Now, we should listen carefully now to understand that if they had stayed with the Old Testament command and the right purpose for fasting then frequent fasting would actually prove that they were more sinful than others. Frequent fasting would prove that they frequently sinned, and so they frequently needed to repent. But Israel had been taught wrongly for so many years that nobody recognized the contradiction. So they just kept on fasting, and people would marvel at their holiness. So fasting wasn't restricted by the Old Testament law and done mainly on the Day of Atonement one day each year. And you may remember, I'm sure you do, reading about the proud Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, the the contrast between him and the publican. And that Pharisee in Luke 18, as he prayed, boasted that he often fasted. Isn't that one of the things he was using to show his righteousness? He, He prayed, I often fast. In fact, he says, twice per week I fast. That's his boast. And so that claim is an indication that there was a new standard that had been introduced into Israel. And the new standard is that we fast twice a week. That's 104 times each year. But that wasn't all. As they did that, there was the false fasting 
And that's the hypocritical part that Jesus addresses. In verse 16, he says, These hypocrites would disfigure their faces. They would smear ashes on them to appear to fast. They didn't want anybody to miss the fact that they had been fasting if they had been fasting at all. And so they wouldn't keep it private between them and God. And if their purpose was right, if their hearts was right, that's what they would do. This would be a secret thing. There was no need to prove anything to anybody if their hearts were right because God is the one who needs to know that. God is the one who sees it. But they wanted to make sure that others saw. And what that did was to reveal the heart was actually wicked. That is not a repentant heart. And so this is what the Old Testament had to say about fasting. And that's how the scribes and the Pharisees had perverted it in the New Testament. And this is the main intent of Jesus' teaching. It was to show how wrong they were in worship in this area regarding personal piety. Well, I want to move on from, from these problems to get to the main reason that we're looking at the topic today. What do we do about fasting in our time? Should we or shouldn't we fast? Are we commanded to fast? And if we are to fast, is that something that would help us in this COVID-19 problem? Should I announce to the entire church that we are going to fast? Well, thirdly, we're going to look at the present place of fasting. I want to address one point before I go further. That some have used Jesus fasting in Matthew chapter 4 as rationale for Christians to fast. In Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And in the second verse of that chapter, the scripture says that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Are we to take Jesus fasting and use that instance for a model, as a model for New Testament Christians? Well, I would say no, because I would say that that's more in keeping with Old Testament fasting. And the clue to that, you, you should see it, is 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, have you heard that before? Have you seen that before as you read the Old Testament, that 40 days and 40 nights? 40 days is the key that links it to two specific times of fasting in the Old Testament. And then I might mention that 40 days and 40 nights, aside from fasting, signified very important events in the Scriptures, doesn't it? For instance, Noah and the flood and so forth, the 40 days and 40 nights. So these are anomalies that are uncommon in the Scripture. So we find, and in the connection of Jesus fasting, we find Moses fasting for 40 days and 40 nights when God called him up on Mount Sinai and gave him the tables of the law to give to Israel. Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he passed the mantle of anointed prophet onto Elisha. And so Moses, Elijah, and Elisha lived in the two periods of the miraculous works of the Old Testament. And so they fasted before outstanding significant events. And this is what we see Jesus doing in Matthew chapter 4. He went into the wilderness immediately after his baptism. It's just before he goes into his public ministry, preaching the gospel. And that ministry would be witnessed by a period of great miracles that proved that he was the Son of God. And so his fasting for 40 days in the wilderness was one of these proofs. His fasting was to take him down 
to the greatest weakness of human flesh, to a time that his body would crave food, and yet he would not give in to the devil's temptations concerning food as the devil tempted him in his great hunger. His fasting was to improve his impeccability. Now that simply means it was to prove that he would not sin under any circumstance. Now you compare that to the temptation of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and I'm sure that you're aware that Jesus is called the second Adam. And what the first Adam did was to sin with food, didn't he? Adam satisfied his desire to eat of a tree that God said, you shall not eat. Adam sinned, not out of the weakness of his flesh, but right when he was there in the middle of the Garden of Eden where he could eat anything that he wanted to eat. Adam was certainly not starving, and yet he sinned against God. Now you contrast that to Christ who is the second Adam, and here is one of the reasons that he's high and holy and better than the first Adam, and that is he would not sin. He would not sin even when his flesh was as weak as it could be. And that proved his impeccability. It proved his perfection. And I would tell you that if you can take that and make a model of fasting for you, then you are much better than Adam, and you're better than Moses, and you're better than Elijah. Now, Jesus had a specific purpose that is not duplicated in any New Testament example. And certainly it did prove that he was far holier than the Jewish leaders who crucified the Son of God. So what we ought not to do is confuse the purpose of Jesus' fasting. We're not speaking there of the common fasting of that time, nor of fasting in our time. But as we look at this, we, we can't deny that fasting was practiced by New Testament Christians. When Jesus taught on this, he doesn't rebuke the practice of fasting. He's dealing with the misuse of it. Now, we find uh, examples of fasting sprinkled throughout the New Testament. The apostles practice it. But there's a peculiar thing about it compared to the other forms of worship that are found in this passage of Matthew 6. Now, once you look at Matthew 6 again, in the first part of the chapter in verses 1 through 4, there Jesus is speaking of giving. Giving is a part of our worship. Well, he just saw that a few minutes ago as we brought our tithes and offerings as we worship the Lord. And what the Jews had done, just like they did with just about everything else, they perverted it. They perverted giving and made it a hypocritical show of piety. And so what they would do is they would stand around the temple area and the collection boxes that were made of wood, they would throw in their coins so people could hear them rattle against the sides and they would know that that person had given their money. Beginning verse number 5, Jesus takes up the issue of prayer. Prayer is worship. That was also perverted. And so Jesus taught them an example of prayer. And that's verses 9 through 13 that we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Now, we think about these two forms of worship for just a minute. What about giving? Well, we can go to numerous New Testament passages that develop a plan for giving. There we can find the purpose of giving. We can find the place of giving. We find the punctuality of giving. That is when we're supposed to give. We find the person of giving, and that's everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And we also find the proportion that we should give. That's why we bring our tithes. 
1 Corinthians 16. That's a great place for us to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul in those places taught the New Testament churches about, about giving. Jesus also taught our relationship to money and giving in parables. And so there's just a significant amount of information in the scriptures about this, both in Old and New Testaments. And then the same is true, even more so about prayer. I mean, there's nobody who reads the scriptures who, who would say, hey, you know something? The Bible says very little about prayer. The Bible doesn't say much at all about prayer, when in fact there are so many examples of it that you can't miss it. And so among these three examples of worship in this chapter, giving, praying, and fasting, prayer, that's the one that stands out the most. It's so important, so integral that Jesus gave specific, detailed teachings on prayer in this chapter. He gave a model prayer to explain it. He deals with it extensively. The apostles emphasize it personally and corporately for God's people in other places of the New Testament. Prayer is our communication with God, and it's critical in the way that we relate to Him. Now, Jesus didn't spend nearly the amount of time with giving and fasting as He does with prayer. In fact, there's not a more significant chapter in the Bible than John 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so, giving, there's a lot about that in the Bible. Praying, there's extensive teaching about it from both Jesus and the apostles. But fasting is different. Jesus didn't expand on it in Matthew 6, and this would be the perfect time to do that since in this chapter he's explaining acts of worship. And then there's not another word from anyone in the New Testament that commands that we must do it. I think that Jesus spoke of it here because of the misuse. I've said that. And because it is an example of personal devotion. Personal devotion needs to be right. Fasting is an example of that. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. I am not saying that fasting is useless and that it shouldn't be practiced. I mean, the very fact that New Testament Christians practiced it tells us something. But I will say that if we think fasting is a way that we can be closer to God or that we can use it to force God's hand or that God will give us certain things if we do it, then we're wrong. And we're also wrong if we think that fasting like things for financial reasons is what the Bible has in mind about it. I've, I've heard this so many times. A, a preacher will get up and say, hey, we need to raise some money. And so we're going to declare a fast. If you'll just skip a meal each week, if you will cut out a trip to McDonald's each week and give that money to the church, then we can meet our financial goals. And so they figure out how many people there on the church, how many, how many trips to McDonald's are made each week, and then they add all that up and they figure out how long it's going to take to raise the money. Well, that's your ingenious method of raising money. I'm not opposed to that. That may not be wrong, but it's not fasting. That's not fasting like you find in the Bible. It's not biblical fasting, and it may not be wrong, but neither can we compare it to fasting in the Bible. Well, what is biblical fasting? I mean, what is the right New Testament practice concerning fasting? Well, let me give you three ways that I think that it can be applied. When might you fast? Well, first, in times of spiritual depression. 
And this is what I would call a natural time of fasting. I'm not speaking of being depressed like clinical depression, nor am I saying that it's okay to be depressed about your circumstances because you're anxious and worried about things. That kind of depression is wrong. It's unbiblical. That kind grows out of a lack of faith, doubt, worry, and depression in that way is lack of dependence upon God. And neither should we be depressed or mourn about sin. And I want you to be careful about what I'm saying here because Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are they that mourn. And you remember I preached on that and Jesus was speaking of being sorrowful when we sin against God. Now, in that sense, we mourn. But we don't need to mourn about the eternal consequences of sin. And that's because our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. All the believer's sins are taken care of in Christ. And so we don't need to sorrow over them in the same way that they did in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a yearly day of atonement because of sin. We don't have that any longer. We don't need that any longer because Christ came to give himself a sacrifice one time for sin. And so we don't deal with sin in that respect any longer. But there are times of a certain type of depression, if you want to call it that. And this is when there is a deep spiritual burden. You have a sense that God is working with you. And you're laboring with God over this burden, some issue that you have. Naturally, you would pray about it because you need to be in communication with God. And it's in those times that you might naturally fast. You really don't care about food emotionally. You're consumed with a burden, and so food is not your first thought. Now, I remember when my father was in the hospital in the last days of his life. I was sad. I wasn't interested in food. And you know, that's something that you feel in your stomach. It's something that goes on right here. And this is the reason that the Bible, in Bible times, they associated the stomach and the bowels with emotions. For instance... Paul used this expression in Colossians 3, verse 12. He said, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. And he used that term bowels because emotionally these are things that are felt in your stomach. And so fasting may be a natural outgrowth of that feeling that you're sad, that you're laboring with God. And so you've made a conscious decision uh, that you want to fast and you may continue that fasting until the issue is resolved. So I'm not talking about depression, not depression related to a lack of faith. But there are times when your brow is furled, you're deeply concerned, your stomach is just churning and you decide to fast. Well, it should be obvious that that kind of fasting is very personal. And that's a key to all these three areas that I want to discuss with you. This is personal. No one would tell you that, well, you must fast. You must do that. The Bible doesn't command that you must do it. And then you don't go tell everybody, hey, guess what? I'm fasting. Oh, I've got this problem. I'm deeply troubled over something and I need to fast. Well, you wouldn't do that because it makes no sense. It's between you and God. Then secondly, you might fast in times of spiritual direction. And this is the most often use of it in the New Testament. 
The Old Testament was about national repentance and mourning for sin, but the apostles didn't do it for that purpose because they didn't need to. But they would fast many times when they were seeking spiritual direction. In Acts 13, we have an example of it. This was before Paul's first missionary journey. And in Acts 13, in verse 1, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now there we have an example of men of God that prayed. They very carefully considered what God would have them do, and so they fasted while they were waiting on God to give an answer. And out of this prayer and fasting came word from the Holy Spirit that Paul and Barnabas were to be sent out by the church to be missionaries. There are a couple of other times in Scripture that Paul speaks of fasting, and the context of those times indicates that it has to do with Paul's personal devotion and seeking God's will. But I suppose the remarkable thing about fasting is that there are some references to it in the Bible, but there aren't many, and so we don't find it commanded, and nor do we have any detailed information about it. And so if this is your method of waiting and finding God's will, if you're looking for an answer and you want to fast, that's not a problem. And if you're sincere about that fasting, there is no one who needs to know about it because fasting is between you and God. Now, it's interesting. You might tell people to pray with you, but where does the Bible say that you need them to fast with you? Now, I want to look at the third reason, and we're going to spend a, a little more time here because this is where we need some correction about modern-day practices. You may fast, thirdly, in times of personal conviction. I think there are many that may pull back on the practice of fasting because we don't want to be associated with those who have unbiblical practices. Now, in the beginning, I told you that we worship differently from Roman Catholics, and that's because our theology concerning how a person is just with God is different from Roman Catholicism. And theology translates into practice. So I'd like to consider for, for a moment the Roman Catholic practice of celebrating Lent. Now, there's a significant amount of Catholic influence in this part of the country, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with this. Uh, I grew up in the Baptist church in the Bible Belt, and when I was younger, I had not met very many Catholics. And I never cared to check into this practice. I mean, to me, Lent was something that you found in your pockets when you took a, the, your pants out of the dryer. But after I came here and I was pastor for a while... I went to the hospital in Petaluma to visit a church member, and the day that I went was Ash Wednesday. Now, the Petaluma Hospital has a Roman Catholic affiliation, and so I went in, and there were many of the nurses that had black spots in the middle of their foreheads. I honestly did not know what that was. And I thought, well, you know, their personal hygiene is not so good to show up for work with dirty faces. But you, you know what that is. That, that is really an example 
of that old pharisaical practice of putting ashes on the faces to appear to be fasting. And they do it so everybody knows that they're celebrating Lent. But what do they do at Lent? Lent is a time to give up things as an act of piety before Easter. Fasting is observed at Lent. And you might decide that you're going to give up something that proves that you're spiritual, that you believe in looking forward to Easter, and that proves somehow, I suppose, that you believe in what happened to Christ on Easter. Many will make the ultimate sacrifice of giving up potato chips and candy bars and fruit loops or things like that, and that's an act of piety. I read an article last week about John Stott. Uh, John Stott was mostly a very good Bible teacher. He was an Anglican, not a Roman Catholic, and he observed Lent. And I was just reading the article about him, and his great sacrifice was to give up chocolate. That's what he liked. Well, to show you how far off base this is, many of you know what happens in New Orleans just before Lent. Before Lent is Mardi Gras. Gabrielle, I'm sure, could tell you that Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday. That's just before the soberness of Ash Wednesday. So Mardi Gras, that's a time of lewdness. It's a time of wickedness and drunkenness and debauchery. It comes immediately before Ash Wednesday, before the beginning of Lent, because that is the last chance to get filled up with sin before you give up things for God. So what's the message? Well, I can sin all that I want on Tuesday because I'm going to make up for it on Wednesday. And so in New Orleans, they have this huge celebration of Mardi Gras. It goes right up to 12 a.m. And then when the bell strikes 12 on Wednesday morning, they roll up the streets and they drive everybody out because now it's time to get holy. And so I guess you say your bad deeds and your good deeds, they cancel each other out and it all comes out in the wash and that's why they call it Lent. Well, do you see what happens when you get theology wrong? Do you see what happens? If you get the wrong answer to this question, how is a man just with God, and you have a work salvation like Phariseeism or Catholicism, then you end up with the wrong kind of worship. Your personal devotion ends up seesawing between your good deeds and your bad deeds and outward acts of piety that really are totally meaningless. And so there may be some Christians that just back off from fasting because we've seen what the abuse of fasting does. But still, there are some good churches, and they're totally wrong about fasting. I know some Baptist churches, some others, that will announce a fast, and the pastor will say, well, we want everybody to fast this week because we're going to entreat God for a special project, whatever that might be. Oh, we have a COVID-19 problem, so we better fast to get rid of it. Then I've received letters from missionaries that tell me they fasted for so many days in hopes that God will answer a special need. They say they fasted. Why do they say they fasted? Well, it's so we'll be sure they know they fasted. And we'll think better of them because they've been fasting. And we'll think better of their problem because they're fasting. That's a misuse of fasting, and it's unbiblical. You can't tell people they must fast, and you can't tell people that you've been fasting. Recently, I listened to a pastor who was undecided about whether he should open his church in this, in this COVID-19 pandemic. Is it the time to open the church? And he just looked forlornly into the camera, and he says, I've been fasting 
for so many days, you can't announce a fast. That is the opposite of what Jesus said to do. Now, according to Jesus, if you're going to stop eating, don't let anybody know you're fasting. If you do, don't tell anybody. If you want to fast, don't tell anybody you're doing it. And much less would you say, we're going to fast to get God to do something. God never wants you to involve yourself in a ritual to try to wrench something out of him. Now, what I'm trying to point out to you is that fasting is deeply personal. There's no command to fast. There's no such thing any longer as corporate fasting. There's no such thing as church-wide fasting. We don't find it in the New Testament. And there is no such thing as Pavlovian response fasting. And that is, God is not conditioned to respond when you ring his bell. And so you won't hear me announce that this week all the members of Berean Baptist Church will fast. Fasting is something that must be dictated by your personal conscience. And so if your personal conviction tells you to fast and it's between you and God alone and your personal dedication is to God alone, then, then do it. That's fine. But if you feel that you need to tell somebody about it and you do it because you want them to watch you or applaud you or think about how holy you are, you do it because, or you do it because you're trying to get something out of God, then think about what you're doing and then run as far away from it as you can. Just answer this question. Why? Please tell me why you would tell anyone that you're fasting. God doesn't honor fasting in our worship when it's offered wrongly. If the premise is wrong, the practice will be wrong. Well, let me sum up with just a few thoughts. Jesus didn't teach that you must fast. What he did in our passage is to teach a principle of personal devotion. How you worship God is a matter of your heart. It doesn't have anything to do with the people, the way that people view you. And so if you give, if you pray, if you fast, if you do any acts of personal devotion, then do it not because you're trying to prove a point, not because you're trying to prove holiness, not because you want to be applauded and taken notice of, because if you do, your heart is not right. And Jesus could apply this to many different examples because the idea of giving up things is not necessarily restricted to food. And so people may think, well, if I just give this up, then God will do something for me. So you may give up TV, you might give up football games, you give up recreation, you might give up Dr. Scholl's insoles and make your feet hurt and punish yourself. But if you do that because you're trying to be a good Christian, like giving up things for Lent, then there's some serious work that needs to be done in your heart. You don't fast to get somewhere. You fast because you've already been somewhere. Because God has done a marvelous work in you, and you respond by fasting, by conviction, by devotion. If that's, that's what prompts it, if that is what prompts it, then your holy, the Holy Father in heaven sees that and Jesus says he will reward that openly. You keep it secret, he rewards it openly. And never once will you say, I got this because I fasted. So I think that we can look at the scriptures and we see there's no command to fast. There is no set time to fast. There are no directions for it like giving and praying. So I think we say that fasting is spontaneous. That it rises arises out of a heart of personal devotion, and it depends entirely on circumstances at the time. 
How shall a man be just with God? And if you answer that question correctly, that man is just with God because of what Christ did for us and nothing that we do for ourselves, then your personal acts of devotion will never glorify you. They'll always glorify God. That's what we were saved for, to glorify God. It's never about us. It's always about Him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.